You're listening to Simple Talk Radio with Wayne McCullough, based out of Dallas, Texas. Reporting in today from Kevin Ebling's new studio. Very excited about this. Capex Productions over off McKinney. So Kevin and our show has made a big move, much closer to my home, which is always good. So as always, we're going to hop into the big five today that I believe really help people align their life with their faith, family, friends, fitness, and finances. I do have a special guest on today, somebody that's part of an organization that's very near and dear to my heart, and hers as well. It's Jessica Trudeau. Welcome. Thank you, Wayne. And we're going to, the the beauty of the the five, faith, family, friends, fitness, finance, is really in a discussion like this, you hit all of them to some extent, right? Even from the finances, from being part of a nonprofit, we have Mm -hmm. to raise money which we're going to be talking about later, dear listeners, um, <laughs> and, and to operate. So I love this. Um, so we'll hit on all five. It, it is really a treat for me because Jessica is the executive director as of March of 19 for the Momentous Institute, which is an organization that I'm involved with through the Salesmanship Club of Dallas, which is effectively um, some of the governments as well as the main fundraising arm for the, for the institute. And we are doing some of the most prolific work in Dallas, if not the United States, in mental health care for children and family. And which, which, which if you listen to the show to this point, mental health is something that I care deeply about. So I love the work that we are doing there. So we're going to dig much deeper into that. Um, Jess is going to give us, we'll call her Jess today. It's Jessica Trudeau, but... I go by Jess. We like Jess. So I'm going to have Jess give a little bit of her background, just where she grew up. Um, she is from Louisiana, which I love. And then we'll we'll jump into what, if you've listened before, there I, we always talk about how generally people have arcs, which is you're born or raised, but then there's generally some experience that begins to create a narrative in your life. And then you get through that experience by the grace of God and with help. And then you get on the other side. And that's what I love about what we're doing on the show, which is really... Everybody has an experience that they can utilize to help people, and everyone's going through something or has been through something. So I think I'm really excited about this for for many reasons. So, Jess, um, what I do love looking at your background is a microbiology degree from LSU, Mm -hmm. who my beloved Longhorns lost to last week, (laughs) and uh, a master's degree from Tulane, which in a small world, my oldest is taking a hard look at Tulane which is, I'm discovering, highly ranked and all from an educational standpoint, and it's a lot of fun. So I do love Louisiana people. I have very close friends in New Orleans. So, But why don't we hop into this, just your background a little bit, sure. and then we'll keep moving. Yeah, um, I grew up in southern Louisiana, part of my life in Gramercy, very tiny community. If you eat Zapp's potato chips, that is our claim to fame. Oh, wow. And yeah. the Bonfire Festival, where we light the way for Papa Noel to come to all the Cajun homes on Christmas Eve. Um, and then I grew up uh, part of my life in New Orleans. I really love Louisiana. I'm very proud of mm. my heritage. Um, Louisiana, particularly Southern Louisiana, folks are very relational. Um, the community I grew up in, there are no strangers. You can have a conversation with everyone. Um, we're all out in front of the houses at all times, eating together and playing music together. And um, it's definitely been very formative into you know, how I go about life on a day-to-day basis. So is that a fairly small town that, that you originally grew up in? Gramercy is very small. Very small. Okay. Okay. So as we progress there, you grew up, do you have siblings? I do. I have, um, there were five of us growing up. Um, one of my brothers has passed away. So my mom always says she has four on earth and one in heaven. I love right. that. Yeah. My son's middle name is after his, his uncle, Tyler. Um, yeah. So grew up, large family. Okay, so you grew up in Gramercy. At what point did you move to New Orleans? Um, my parents split up when I was in um, either like around kindergarten, first grade, and my father lived in New Orleans. My mom lived in Gramercy, so I spent time in both. Mm-hmm. 
So let's let's delve into that background a little mm-hmm. bit on okay. the part of what we consider the Genesis story, which you know, elementary, middle, high school, and and you've talked publicly about you know things that happened that that ultimately put you on a path to help others, mm-hmm. specifically to help children in prevention and recovery, care, and redemption, which I absolutely love because if you've heard me say before. Our brokenness is a bridge to God, not a barrier. And shame, guilt, etc., you know, creates that barrier, which is completely false, which isn't part of God's narrative. So, you're, would you like to touch on, on on that background that really, you know, created this experience that that got you to the point where we are today? Sure. Um, I love that you approach it that way. Um, at one point, someone told me. Um, for stained glass, it's the fractures that let the light in yep. and allow it to be beautiful. And I believe that about human beings. I also believe that we're all going to experience suffering. And mm-hmm. so if you haven't experienced suffering yet, I'm grateful for you. And at some point in your life, you will. Yep. So um, the moments of really deep suffering in my life... Um, I've grown from. My mother always says you can learn in the darkness or you can learn in the light. I'd say as a 44-year-old, I'm trying to learn in the light more often. Yes. <laughs> but, um, you know, growing up um, very early, I was exposed to violence in my home. Um, my father was abusive to my mother and I. Um I don't consider myself a victim of that abuse. At you know this point in my life, I consider myself a survivor, mm-hmm. and I'm so grateful for every experience that I've had and walking through the darkness that followed it, so that I can show up and create space for other people. Um, for other people, t- when you feel hopeless, I definitely felt hopeless. Um, so that um, about the first decade of my life was um, really traumatic, difficult. Um, And then I would say the second decade of my life was trying to understand why it all happened and what it all meant. And so you're referencing 0 to 10 and then 10 to 20? 10 to 20, Okay. yeah. Yeah. So high school was really challenging for me. I had good grades up until I got into high school. And then I think that's when the experiences of my first decade in this world really started to hit me. I felt very different. I struggled with depression. Um, I didn't think anyone else had experiences like I had. I didn't, I felt shameful and didn't want to share what my life was like. I mean, there was still um, some chaos in my life and in my um, family of origin. Um, during high school, year after year, my grades slowly dropped. Um, I, you know, was rebellious. I think I was angry and in pain, and um, I wanted the pain to go away. Mm-hmm. You know, I would do anything I could to not experience the deep pain, and then when I felt it, it, it felt like it would kill me. Um. 17, at 17 years old, um, was a really pivotal time for me. And after really difficult event, I um, started working with a therapist. And I would say that that turned my life around. Now, it wasn't quick and easy. And I've um, worked with a therapist on and off for most of my life. Um, I see it as a sign of strength and a sign of courage. You know, mm-hmm. in therapy, we face the darkest parts of ourself. We face the darkest parts of our history. And we get to make choices about how to live our lives. Um, so I, I went to college. I was accepted into LSU. Um, knew I wanted to do something that was healing in nature. So I was um, a nursing major at one point, and then I was pre-med. So I decided to study microbiology and pursue a medical degree. 
um, it was it was great. It was very challenging. Um, I remember my mom um, the first time I came home with uh, a high G- GPA because of my high school experience. Um, she said, "Is this real?" <laughs> <laughs> it was a three point yeah. seven, and I said, "Yes, it turns out I'm really smart." <laughs> yeah, you know. But I started to discover d- new things about myself, and started to realize um, I can do something with my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't get into med school, and so I decided I was going to pursue um, a MPH with the idea that it would help me. So my master's is in public health. Mm-hmm. Um, my specialty is maternal and child health and thought that it would help me get into school, but then I fell in love with public health. I also remember, you'll hear me reference my mom a lot. My mom is um, my hero and um, very influential in my life. But I remember I told my mom I was I was going to practice public health, and she said, well, could you also get an MBA? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but what I loved about public health is I, I've always been for the underdog in any situation, and maybe it's because I was the underdog. I always say people who knew me in high school, not a lot of people were betting on me that mm-hmm. I would make it. Um, and maybe that's why, but public health is so much about who are the underdogs in our community, why do some populations have better outcomes than others? What are the systemic and policy level issues, lack of access to services that prevent some from doing as well as others? And certainly my spiritual belief is that we all should have equitable opportunities Mm -hmm. because we're all made in the image of some higher understanding and higher being that I don't, I don't know that level of wisdom. And so how can I be a vessel and a vehicle um, to create equity through public health interventions and um, through being a voice for people who don't have a voice in the community? Uh, that's great. And, and, you know, you're so fortunate, and, and I am as well, I think about your mother, mm-hmm. who had the opportunity to speak into your life, but think how many kids, they don't even have that. They don't have either parent. Yeah. Right? Or, or two abusive parents, or then you, or, you're right, it's so important to have the public health option because they've got nowhere to go. Yeah. Right? So, so they, in public health, we refer to those different factors as risk and protective factors. Yeah. And so what we know is given a set of risk factors that an individual experiences, whether a child or adult, that there are protective factors that can buffer that individual Mm -hmm. um, and help help them to still achieve or experience positive life outcomes. A strong parent-to-child attachment is one of those. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I want to offer for those that are listening... There were many, many, many years that my mother and I did not have a close relationship, um, but we found it, and it was through a path of empathy and understanding and forgiveness, and now she's one of my best friends, um, and she's definitely a spiritual influence on my life. I count my blessings for her when she talks to me about what will happen one day you know and i say when you're 110 because that's when i'll be ready to let you go (laughs) yeah so let me back up a little bit Mm -hmm. you because this i want to encourage and i do because my daughter and some of her friends have been listening which is Mm -hmm. good you went to a therapist at 17 which is hard to get a 17 year old to a therapist in today's day and age, it must have been, and it was even more passe back then, right? So, how did what transpired to get you to a therapist? And, and clearly, that person spoke a narrative in your life that began yeah. a positive change. That just okay. seems unique considering where you were in your background. So, I have not talked a lot about this, but um, I I had experienced tremendous adversity and at 17 I was suicidal yeah 
Um, I was very, very depressed. Um, now, because I work in this field and I understand the impact of trauma on individuals, um, I can look back and have such empathy for that 17-year-old. Um, for children who experience particularly abuse or victimization, the most common way for a child to understand that is that it, it happened because of something within them. Mm -hmm. It happened because they are inherently bad. Um, the other alternative for children is to process chaotic experiences or adversity as life is chaos and bad things can happen at any time. And that's almost impossible for a child, right? Mm -hmm. So it's easier for me if I can control it based on my behavior. But it also means that when bad things happen, it's because I caused it. And I think when I look back at my 17-year-old self, I was very depressed and I didn't believe in the person I was. I didn't think I was a good person. Mm. Um, so I was somewhat forced into <laughs> therapy and it turns out that it saved my life. So you were pressed in by people that cared for you yep. ultimately. Yeah. And which is fortunate, mm -hmm. right? And, and sadly, we're seeing teen suicide rates climb yeah. at epic proportions right now. Some other, that's a whole other show possibly we can get mm -hmm. into my uneducated thesis on that. But um, it's concerning. It's obviously very fortunate you went and saw a counselor mm -hmm. because that is a path that kids are choosing. And I have teenage children, mm -hmm. and I talk to them directly about this. And, and, and you are dealing with an undeveloped mind, too, so yeah. it doesn't really even understand the ultimate outcome, which is... Scary. So, well, I'll share what I share for my nearly teenage um, daughter. She's mm -hmm. 12 years old. And for your daughters and other teenagers who are listening, it's easy to think there is not a path out. And what I will offer, and if you can just hear my voice, I've seen, I feel like I've lived lifetimes within 44 years. Mm -hmm. There is always a path out. And the easiest way to access that path is to surround yourself with community. We cannot, we cannot do this life alone. We were not meant to do this life alone. I believe we were um, created and hardwired mm -hmm. to be in community. And so when you feel like, I just can't keep going on, find the person who will be safe for you and reach out and ask for support. Yeah. Yeah, I just talked to, I had Ryan Birdman Parrot on last week, and um, and he deals with a lot of PTSD and soldiers and, and CTE, and but he, yeah, he said isolate. I said, what, what is, how do you get it? He said, isolation is the killer. Yeah. Right, silent isolation. So, okay, let, let's continue, mm -hmm. not backwards, but it's something that I think, that I get was introduced to through the school, which is toxic stress. Yeah. So clearly, you, which is interesting that you're in now the executive director of what I believe one of the institutions really identified that and doing good things. Mm -hmm. So would you educate the listener and me more on what toxic stress is? And then you clearly had it, and it affected your brain function because mm -hmm. you began to get depressed and your gray matter was wired the wrong way due to mm -hmm. that toxic stress, but you've fixed that. But tell us a little mm -hmm. bit about toxic stress and then if you believe that you went through it, which I think clearly you did. Yeah, so um, there is positive stress, tolerable mm -hmm. stress, and toxic stress. So I'm going to actually start with positive stress and then go deeper into what is toxic stress and how does it impact our brain functioning and our mm -hmm. physiology. So positive stress is any um, stressor on our lives that will, it, it does not overwhelm us, but it encourages us to perform. So um, I have a son who is a soccer player, Marcel. Um, he believes that he may be an internationally known professional soccer player <laughs> later in life. And for now, I yeah. support that dream. Um, 
When Marcel is about to go into his first game in a tournament, there is a level of positive stress. He wants to get on the field. He wants to practice kicking. Um, he feels just a bit anxious, and that is going to allow him to perform. That positive stress during a tournament is also going to allow him to make it through four games on a Texas summer day yeah. <laughs> right. when it's 98 degrees because he feels stressed from wanting to show up for his teammates, and he feels stressed from wanting to um, show up for himself. Mm -hmm. Positive stress. Um I experience it when I'm under a deadline for work or we're working on a grant deadline. That little bit of stress is going to allow me to get the job done. Mm -hmm. Children experience that positive stress all the time. Tolerable stress. So I'll give an example for a child of what perhaps tolerable stress could look like. And I say perhaps because we all have different stress thresholds. So what is tolerable for me, Wayne, may be intolerable for mm -hmm. you or vice versa, right? Um, and that's really important to remember when we're showing up and supporting others to understand that their limits when it comes to stress may not be the same of ours and it allows us to re release our expectations about how someone is quote unquote supposed to show up in a situation. It's their journey. Mm -hmm. So um, tolerable stress might be for a child um, moving from the childhood home that they had um, lived in for 10 years. So for children, routine and, um, you know, having a home and, a, a, you know, things that they're used to brings calm. It brings peace of mind. So moving out of a home um, into another home, but perhaps staying in the same school might generate stress, but it, it can still be tolerable. And certainly it is buffered if there's a good relationship with parents mm -hmm. and strong community. Toxic stress, we also refer to this as um, compound trauma, is when situations that are stressful start to add up and they overwhelm the child's capacity to cope with a situation. So if the same child moved into a new house and at the time didn't know that in the future his parents were going to be splitting up and then the parents separate and go through a divorce. And then let's say mom starts dating someone and eventually introduces the partner to the child that's a that's an additional stressor and then that partner is abusive to the child those series of stressors within a relatively short period of time will likely lead to toxic stress because the child system has been overwhelmed so what happens, it, this impacts our um, neurophysiology and our, our body's phys physiology. So what happens is we have a portion of our brain that um, is the part of our brain that is activated when we are in fight, flight, or freeze mode. Mm -hmm. And so when, and, and that's a very important part of our part of our brain. It's a very important um, uh, mechanism to support us being healthy and getting out of danger. But what happens is for a child that's experiencing many stressors, that portion of the brain gets overactivated so that the child can live in that place, in mm -hmm. that brain. So what that looks like is hypervigilance, oversensitivity, um, and inability to focus and concentrate. And so it's everything from having continuously a heightened heart rate and heightened respiratory rate to um, not, not being able to focus and acquire knowledge and learn in the classroom and be able to perform on a test. So is that, is that part of the brain underdeveloped or not developing? No, actually, so that is our... Um, 
the technical um, part of the brain is the amygdala, and that is our most primitive part of our brain. Mm-hmm. So the part of our brain that, and yes, it is it is still developing throughout childhood. Um, the the part of our brain that is continuing to develop extensively throughout childhood and into adolescence and early adulthood is the prefrontal cortex, mm-hmm. and that's the part of the brain that actually helps. Um, so that's the part of the brain that when we can access it is going to allow us to focus and concentrate. It's the part of our brain that allows us to take a difficult experience and put it into context um, and allow us to make logical decisions rather than emotive decisions. Mm-hmm. And so in that part of our brain isn't fully developed until we're 25. Well, okay, so I'm glad you hit that right there. So as I went through anxiety and stress in my life, which we'll get into a little bit with the current work, so discovering things like mindfulness meditation mm-hmm. was huge for me. Yeah. I like facts and real facts, so I started looking at UMass and Stanford and a lot of the work being put out. So it's my understanding that there was generally a belief that you can't rewire the gray matter and that they're seeing truly the gray matter being rewired through things like mindfulness and Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's a huge step that well, they, I don't think people believed we could get to. Yeah. Um, thank goodness for the science on, um, you know, neurobiology, because now we know what I think many of us believed early on. Yeah. Of course, there's always an opportunity for redemption, mm-hmm. and there are a variety of ways to rewire the brain. So, meditation, um, a spiritual practice. Therapy. There are even specific therapeutic modalities and treatments that specifically target rewiring the brain to basically skip the trauma track. Mm-hmm. You know, for people who uh, PTSD, for example, um, someone who has experienced um, an inc- incredibly traumatic event, whether it be an assault or um, experiencing you know, war, mm-hmm. et cetera. Um, what the brain will do is continue to replay those events. And so when people have flashbacks, when people have anxiety attacks or panic attacks, panic disorder, that is the brain continuing to process along that circuit. There are specific therapies like neurofeedback and um, EMDR that target those brain patterns and create new ones so that it it releases um, the mind from traveling along those pathways yeah this is so great and so i'd encourage listeners right now if you're out there you know you're, you're welcome to email me um or text me or yeah I'm, my information is long gone from being private so mm-hmm. <laughs> i can be found anywhere but i can get you great research or data or things Absolutely. to talk about emdr or i remember i saw a therapist once yes i saw a therapist and mm-hmm. he had me do something called tapping mm-hmm. I'm like okay that's no i'm yeah. out he's like just trust me but it's those there's so many modalities that help so where would you say um because i encourage people because for many many years medications had a very negative um connotation they still do frankly right a lot of people you know it's just and it's a shame does that does that fall in this spectrum somewhere absolutely you know so and they're making a lot of progress in that area too right absolutely there so i am a believer that um a treatment plan is going to be different for every person Mm -hmm. so for some people um medication is the way to go. Um, I will say for some mental health disorders, medication is a must. Right, yeah. Um, you know. Um, so it's another, yeah. I mean, the yeah. way I look at it, it's another arrow in the quiver. Yeah. Um, and, and I go so far as when I often meet with men, which we'll, we'll circle back to I met with one phone call, one meeting with two gentlemen that are depressed. And I'm like, these are 45-ish-year-old men, yeah. and, and I just say, have you got any full blood panel done? Mm-hmm. Right? Because if you come back and tell me your testosterone's at 120, yeah. when a healthy male is 650, I'm not saying you have to go inject yourself testosterone, but we have to do something. Yeah. Right? So th- just people don't 
look far enough often. There's so many, you know, biochemical factors that are in the human body that are affecting everything. Yes. And so I am a very big believer um, in addressing the needs of the whole person. Mm-hmm. Um, probably my, my earliest experience with this, I mentioned that we lost a brother. Mm-hmm. I walked with my mom after losing my brother, Tyler. He was 19. He was in a car crash. And she had just two years before lost her husband, my stepfather. And so she, I didn't know if she was going to make it. Mm-hmm. Um, um, it will not surprise you that I am the caretaker in my family. Yeah. I'm that sibling. Um, I moved home. I was in graduate school. I moved home to live with her. She was CEO of a hospital. And I can remember walking in the kitchen, and she couldn't remember how to make coffee. And I, I told my siblings, she may not make it back. Um, fortunately, she was seeing a stunning therapist. And what the therapist said is, you lost your husband and your baby in two years. And the only way you're going to get through with this is if we have all hands on deck. And so she saw a therapist, was on medication. She saw a Reiki practitioner. So we she received like all natural homeopathic mm-hmm. treatment, a massage therapist. She did EMDR. She did tapping. And it was sort of like, we're going to get all hands on deck and whatever works, works. And we don't care what works. What we care about is finding Joan. Mm-hmm. What I can say, so my brother died in 2004. So about 15 years ago, my mother is like the rising phoenix. She is the most beautiful soul. She ended up retiring from being a CEO. She built this healing space in her backyard in Gramercy, Louisiana. And she works particularly with women around trauma. And, you know, some of the lessons that I now live by that I learned from her um, that I would offer for all of your five categories, mm-hmm. um, you have to be able to sit with discomfort. The goal is not to numb pain. If you numb pain, you numb joy. And sitting in pain will not kill you. You will get to the other side, but there's no way around it. There, there's, there's no path to recovery in this lifetime that does not involve with walking through the pain you're experiencing. Um, the other thing is we all have a soul journey. Um, that's hard as a parent, right? Because mm. we don't want to see our kids suffer. Correct. It's hard for me as an executive director because I don't want to see my staff suffer. And as an executive director, I have to make the decisions that may be hard and that are going to ensure the long-term viability and sustainability of our, our agency and our work. Mm-hmm. So you have to understand, we have an opportunity, I should say, to understand that everyone has their own life paths to walk. And it's not our job to save anyone. It's our job to learn the lessons we're supposed to learn in this lifetime and to witness and offer light and hope to others, but to let them walk their path. Those two things have been very informative for me. Okay, so state that again Mm -hmm. about being uncomfortable? We have an opportunity to sit with discomfort and know it will not kill us. Okay, yeah. So it, it flashed through my mind. I think you were with us when I ran the ultra marathon for mm-hmm. the school. So I have this renowned coach at Arizona. Um, I've, I've mentioned this before, James Fitzgerald, but I called James. It was panicking to some extent. There was a lot on the line, my life for one, but that's a whole other story. So <laughs> I called James the day about eight o'clock that night. The race is six a.m. the next morning. I said, James, what? I just, what do you, what do, what do you want the next eleven and a half hours to look like? And he said, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And yeah. I remember thinking, that's it. And he's like, that is it. It's a great I metaphor want you to for get life. Very uncomfortable with being uncomfortable. And if you know Coach Fitzgerald, he literally basically hung up after that. But, <laughs> but I, that's always stuck. I've actually yeah. said it to my kids, right? It's, it's, such, it's one of my favorite quotes, but it's very similar to what you're talking about. And you learn through mindfulness, and uh, there's, a, there's a website called Zen Habits that a guy Leo mm-hmm. Babalta writes for. He writes a bunch of that, which is 
sitting with your discomfort and, and it's no secret that I've had anxiety attacks and whatnot. So that was a huge eye opener for me, right? You just sit with it. And You're, honor it. Yeah. Um, so that's another along those lines, another thing that I learned from my mother and I've now learned in many areas of my life is anxiety at least from my perspective, often stems from trying to push things away. So this feeling is really difficult, and I'm just going to try to pretend like it's not there. And so there's this this, um, honoring. Many many, um, centering prayers Mm -hmm. come from this this viewpoint of, I'm going to honor whatever comes to mind. So... If I am in pain, I am going to, if I have to even say it out loud, I'm going to tell myself, and I'm going to tell the pain, I honor you, pain. I honor you, anxiety. I honor you, very difficult situation. And you're welcome here because you have a lesson to teach me. Mm-hmm. I can't just live in joy and think that I'm going to learn all my lessons. And so, but once I learn my lesson, I'm going to release you. And so it's a way to understand ourselves and understand what's happening in our minds and also to be able to find a path out of it. Right. It doesn't have to define you, right? Yeah. That's something when Mike, and it's fortunate my brother, so I can talk openly Mm -hmm. about it, and he's a great example of somebody, even in my family, would say, well, you know, Mike's depressed. And I would say, he is not depressed. He is Mike. He happens to have symptoms of depression, mm-hmm. right? People get hung up on labels, in which they're needed for diagnosis purposes. But I think they, it's just my personal opinion, it ran wild to some extent, which yeah. is Wayne has panic attacks. Or when, yeah, like, I do, but it doesn't define who I am, yes. right? And, and there's, like you said, you get on the other side of it. So let's, um, first of all, your authenticity and candor is greatly appreciated. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, this, I'm going to go back again, and I don't want to get too close to home. So with your father's situation, mm-hmm. um, there are generational, not curses, but generationally something went wrong. Mm-hmm. Right, meaning your father didn't wake up most likely and want to be that man. And this is important for me because I've had to deal with this myself. So, meaning something went wrong generationally, most likely, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm happy to talk about that. Yeah. Right. There, this is a generational cycle in Mm -hmm. my family. Um, My father experienced abuse growing up. Um, my father is deceased now, so he passed away. He's 52. He had cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, I will offer that there's always redemption. I hadn't seen my father for probably eight years um, before his cancer diagnosis, but I helped to take care of him as he was dying, and it was incredibly healing. I forgave him. So when you talk about generational mm-hmm. impact, there's generational experiences that can be continued and there are generational experiences that can be broken. And so for me, forgiving my father was very important so that I could be a healthy parent. Mm -hmm. I forgave him before he passed away. And there's still difficult moments that come up, but I really try to honor those. And I pray that he is in the most beautiful of places, and I believe he is. Um, There's also, like, um, taking everything that I learned from healing from those experiences with my father and allowing that to inform how I parent. Mm -hmm. And I've worked really hard to do that. Yeah, I love that because generations can be changed so that's a pretty good spot to or very good spot to move into the work i said that we are doing yeah we are Um, doing it yeah that you know that's exactly what we're trying to do Mm -hmm. to some extent and i'm not saying every family is is from an abuse family of course but is you know what can we do to help those that have less circumstances than we do and then to improve the next generation. So I always say is the families and children we're working with, 
you know, we're doing generational work here because if we get that mm-hmm. one child, the first child of the family to go to college yeah. and, and help them get their mental aspect right, it's just you can literally change mm-hmm. generations and futures, which is unbelievable. So so walk us – I want to get to the moment since too, yeah, which is near and dear to both mm-hmm. of us. But tell tell the listeners a little bit about your prior work to get to Momentus. Oh, sure. Right, so they can understand just you didn't just show up at Momentus <laughs> executive director, right? Yeah, so. Um, and we should give Michelle Kinder a shout out right now. Because, shout out to Michelle yeah, Kinder. I'll make sure Another she Another of this. my heroes. Mine too. So yeah. uh, she was a predecessor to mm-hmm. Jessica, and I think put a us mentor. on the map yeah. in a lot of ways. Absolutely. Good ways. So you may, as far back as you want to go, you know, your family compass, but I don't actually even know how you landed in Dallas. So yeah, a little yeah. bit of that, and then we can get up to the momentous. Mm-hmm. Um, so moved to Dallas, um, actually for my ex-husband's position. He's a professor. Mm-hmm. When you marry a professor, you know you have to move, likely. Yeah. Um, so ended up, um, he is a professor at uh, UNT in Denton. Mm-hmm. And I, so I've worked always in public health field. Um, in Louisiana, I did work in uh, maternal and child health, HIV and teen pregnancy prevention and intervention. Mm-hmm. When I first came to Dallas, I um, worked in HIV early intervention. Um, my mom always asked me, why do you have to work in the most depressing areas? <laughs> <laughs> but I think there's something, I told you that I'm always for underdogs, yeah, yeah. and I think there's something appealing for me to work in a space where some people aren't comfortable working. Sure. Um, that first position um, here was incredibly impactful on my life and how I look at this work. So it was an early intervention clinic working with individuals who did not have insurance um, it was through Dallas Health and Human Services and we would test and let individuals know when they were positive um, talk about having to hold space for people mm-hmm. and so, and be able to sit with the discomfort of another um, I had worked clinically I worked at a hospital um, as a um, like ER technician in college, but I hadn't worked with patients since then. Mm-hmm. Um, it was incredibly trying, and it was incredibly beautiful to be able to be the person to witness someone's journey and to help bring hope into that situation. From there, I um, went to Parkland, where I worked about four and a half years in the Injury Prevention Center, and so worked in prevention and intervention of injuries, whether it's unintentional, so car crashes and things um, of that nature, um, to intentional injury, so um, family violence, homicides, child abuse. That's when I first started working in the family violence arena. I was um, recruited to apply after that to the position I held before I came to Momentous Institute, which was executive director of the Um, Family Compass, that was the Child Abuse Prevention Center when I first joined and went through a rebrand that, um, you know, was my first time as executive director, trial by fire. (laughs) Yeah. Talk about fake it till you make it. You know, I learned everything about management and administration there. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was hard. It was not easy. Over, I was there for six years. Over six years, um, with this amazing team that I worked with, we doubled in size. Yeah, how large is Family Cup from an employee standpoint? Yeah, I think when I left, there were twenty-two staff members. Okay. Um, so much smaller than Momentous, and it when I started, it was a tiny organization, mm-hmm. budget of seven hundred fifty thousand. When I left. It was a $2 million organization supporting 22 people th- serving thousands across the Metroplex. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned a lot. Um, I learned how to be, or at least started learning how to be the leader that I am today, even though that's continuing to evolve. So I learned it's okay to make mistakes as a leader. Show up and say you're sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Say that you'll probably make more mistakes, but 
you'll try to learn from your mistakes. I learned how to honor um, the expertise of others and to surround myself with brilliant people and to never for one second be intimidated by that, but to use it so that we can collectively create change. Um, yeah, and so then I was recruited to Momentous Institute, and I was um, Director of Development and Strategic Partnerships for three and a half years. Right, and that's where we met, because I yeah. was on the Development Committee. So were you, recru- you were recruited for that position. Yeah. But it's interesting, because you went from Executive Director to what I'd say more of a direct fundraising role. Yeah, yeah. Was that unique or different for you i mean i know you're raising you're, you're always raising money <laughs> oh my goodness i mean executive even director. now yeah but so i guess you were doing a lot of that compass but, as well but no it's a good um i was exhausted so i was exhausted and i had young children and mm-hmm. i didn't know if i would ever be an executive director again it was a very conscious decision mm-hmm. not to go for an executive director position um and I had this opportunity to come to Momentous Institute and be mentored by Michelle Kinder. Right, yeah. Uh, another one of the great fortunes of my life. Right. Fortunate experience. Um, and so she was a big reason why I came. Um, so I was in that position and really grateful to learn. And then Michelle announced that um, it, it was time for her to pursue um, growth in different areas for her life. And I actually, I went back and forth over applying for the mm-hmm. position. And part of it because is because I know what this position, what it means. And that I knew that if I went for it, and certainly if I got the position, that I would have to be so very thoughtful about how I continue to take care of myself, that I don't lose myself, that I can show up and be the mother that I want to be. Um, and it's still a trial by fire, but I'm finding my way through that after six months in the position. Well, you're doing a fabulous job. Thank you. And I do want the listeners to know, too, this was not a, and this is just a compliment to you, it wasn't a, there was no givens here. I mean, you went into the interview pool just like everyone else, yeah. and and you rose to the top. Yeah, it was So a long search. <laughs> yes, it was. So, okay, that's, that's a great opportunity. So here you are now. Mm-hmm is the executive director filling large shoes, but they're your own shoes, so that's perfectly fine. <laughs> um, what, t- tell, because not everybody knows what Momentous yeah, Institute, yeah. And, and for you out there, most of you know the, what the Byron Nelson is, which is a golf tournament that effectively helps fund a, a large part of our organization, but the Institute is a school and family work center, and so ju- just to give you an idea, so just fill sure. the listener in on what we're doing and what that looks like today. Yeah, really amazing organization. I don't just say that because I'm paid to say it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I believe it with all of my heart. So Momentous Institute, um, like the Salesmanship Club of Dallas, is coming up on our 100-year anniversary next year. The majority of those 100 years were exclusively focused on mental health services. Um, currently, in 2019... We have three buckets of services, um, therapeutic services, and I'll talk a bit more about each one. Our school, our lab school in Oak Cliff, where we take everything we know about mental health and apply it in an academic setting, and then training and research to disseminate our practices. So the commonality across all of those programs is that we have a vision that all children can build and repair social-emotional health so that all children can achieve their full potential in this world and be who they're meant to be in this world. So for the programs, we go about accomplishing that vision by offering mental health services for more than 5,000 children and family members on an annual basis. The services range from assessments of the smallest children and play therapy for our youngest through family therapy, group based therapy. Um, We also have an adolescent program. We've talked about adolescence a bit on this show. As I am raising a Mm 12-year-old, I joke that adolescents would much more like to hear from one another than from us as adults. So this is a peer-based program where really the therapy is, um, there is a clinician in the room that's facilitating, but the therapy comes in group interaction with one another. 
the difference between us and our mental health services and some other providers is we're strengths-based and we're systems-based. And this gets to that generational impact that you Mm -hmm. alluded to before. So we will not just work with a child. We want to work with the whole family system. You can provide high-quality services just to a child, and they can improve in clinical functioning. But if you put them back into a system that has not adapted, they are going to adapt back into that dysfunctional system. So we want to work with the whole family so we can get to sustainable change even after the family stops working with us, and certainly we can get to generational change. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is that we are strengths-based, and so you referenced this earlier, we are much less likely to, we certainly do diagnose and we, you know, will diagnose when needed, but we're not forcing a diagnosis. We'd much more rather focus on all of the strengths of the family. And, you know, as a parent, that really resonates with me. Mm -hmm. So when the wheels go off with my kids and they have, because the wheels go off the bus for all families, if I take my child into the therapy office And all I hear during that visit is everything that is wrong with my child or wrong with me as a parent. Um, It feels like a beat down. Mm -hmm. As opposed to that, if I go in and hear, yeah, things are tough. And while here are the, the challenges that I'm hearing, here are the things that you guys are getting right. Mm -hmm. Let's build off of those things that are going right And let's know that there's hope. This is not how life will always be. I'm going to want to go back every week to therapy. And so that's the methodology that we employ. Finally, our very strong belief with all of our services is I am not the expert on your family. I have, you know, I have this agency. Our staff has expertise on trauma. We have expertise on best practices from a mental health perspective and an education perspective. But in fact, as the parent, you are the expert on your child. And so that allows us to work with families in partnership mm-hmm. rather in a let me tell you what to do. Yeah, empowerment. And let me let me believe on any moment of any day that I could ever save you. You, you can save yourself mm-hmm. and I can walk with you. That's the methodology we use. So then we take that. In 1997, we launched a laboratory school in Oak Cliff um, where we take everything we know about working with a whole child, building social-emotional health, working with the whole family, and bring that to an academic setting. And the genesis story behind the school is that we were very informed by many different um research reports, but one was by the Children's Defense Fund at the time, and it it indicated if you line up any 100 children, 20 will have diagnosable mental health or behavioral conditions, 15 of the 20 will never make it into therapy. And so this was a way to take everything we know that can be beneficial in therapy and bring it to a setting where all children are, and to test it so that we could then share it out. Mm -hmm. So when you look at our students, they're served pre-K three through fifth grade, They launch after fifth grade, go to more than 60 different schools, but their outcomes are the same, regardless of the school they go to. 97% are graduating high school on time, 81% going to college, 84% persisting into their second year. It's our belief that it's that focus on the whole child and building social emotional health that is allowing that to happen. And a percentage does have to be first generation college students. The majority of first generation college students. Which is even crazier. Yeah, yeah. And and it compares favorably to students across the state of Texas that are economically disadvantaged, sure. But really, what we're excited about is that they compare favorably to students that are not economically disadvantaged. Right, yeah. That That's our end game. Our end game is close the achievement gap. Mm-hmm. So then, um, finally, our third bucket of service is training and research. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Last year, we trained more than 9,000 professionals, predominantly education and mental health, to take our practices and integrate our practices into their current system. And that is provided through in a variety of ways. We have, you know, one-time or two-time trainings where it's just a baseline understanding of trauma, how trauma impacts children, and then how that trauma can manifest behaviorally 
and some basic strategies to address that to really intensive partnerships where we're working with institutions for three to four years to create long-term sustainable impact. We also have a conference. The conference is coming up on the 24th and the 25th, um, covering many of the aspects that you have covered on previous shows. And so this conference, um, it's a two-day all-keynote conference where we hear, hear from the best and brightest minds across the country on this year. It's on hidden factors. So the things we don't talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, how does race and inequity around race, how does addiction and a lack of being willing to talk openly about addiction and how does abuse in the foster care system, how do those um, experiences impact children and how can we create more equitable systems so that all children can have the same opportunities and the same outcomes? And it is appropriately titled what? Hidden Factors. No, no, the conference. Changing the odds. Right, yeah. Which uh, we're going to put all this in the show notes and, and I'll circle back on that at the end. So I love the strength-based therapy. I'm not sure I'd ever really caught that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it reminds me of Jason Garrett, head coach of the Cowboys, is dealing with you know 35-year-old super athletes, males, that are headstrong. But he still, when he gives a correction, he gives two or three compliments first mm-hmm. before he comes down on them, which is, oh, you made a great move to your left. I liked the sidestep you took, mm-hmm. but we need to work on this. Yeah. It's a great, I, I wanted to bring that up because as a parent, and I, our demographic probably trends to the mid-40s, we have a tendency to jump on our children first when mm-hmm. if you can just take a minute and point out good things, and then you can... You can make your move for a corrective behavior, but that is really, really, I love that. So it also, the, the, when I tour the school, which I do a couple times a year, I love, like you said, we're bringing that lab-based or therapy-based. Never forget that one of the first times I went, I noticed a little thing, there's water bottles everywhere. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of open, a lot of sunlight. Mm-hmm. And I just noticed all these things. You know, the brain operates better in natural light hydrated brains obviously work better Mm -hmm. but what's a shame is i went to one of my children's schools which clearly will go in name but i'll never forget i'd learned that from you guys and one of the children in their class had spilt their water bottle so the teacher gets upset and takes water away for the rest (laughs) of the year yeah which is just infuriates you because it's just a lack of education. Yeah. And and then once again, that wasn't really strength-based training there, but we And can, it may have been a teacher trying to do the best she could. Right, in the exactly. Moment. And yeah. I will say that because that's a term I've been using a lot lately, which is everyone's just doing the best they can mm-hmm. generally. Right. Yeah. So, okay. Um, so the, the current work is you're running moments on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. Um, so self-regulation, yeah. I'll offer, since you brought that up, self-regulation is is a core competency within mm-hmm. um, with, about social-emotional health, mm-hmm. and it's important for children, and it's important for adults. And so when you were talking about you know children's ability to get water if they need water, um, to go to the bathroom if they need to go to the bathroom, mm-hmm. um, and their ability to understand and manage their emotions, that's self-regulation. So you also mentioned about parents and how they show up with their children. Let me offer how we address behavior at the school, and I will say how I try my best Mm -hmm. and fail sometimes, but how I try to address behavioral issues in my home. When an issue comes up, Um, And so this is for parents or teachers or really anyone who's working with a child. And a child is severely dysregulated. So screaming, crying, overwhelmed. Um, Logic will not work. You know, every every one of us as parents remembers that age when our child had to have the purple socks. So when your child is screaming, I have to have my purple socks today, you logically explaining to the child why they can't have their purple socks will not work. Mm-hmm. Helping that child be able to understand their emotions and be able to calm down 
will allow you to then be able to have the logic conversation. And so at school, let's say we have, um, let's say in our first grade classroom, um, students are working on a collaborative project and tempers flare and uh, James hits Jennifer, okay, as an example. The teacher is going to work first to help James calm down and understand his emotions without putting him into a shame spiral. And then after he's calmed down, the lesson or the logic will be about empathy. And can the two understand what led to the argument? And can the two understand um, how it felt for one another? Um, there are still consequences. It's not that there aren't consequences, but it's a whole different frame on how we think about how we teach lessons in those moments. Yeah, my biggest struggle was um, not escalating things when they were already going sideways. Yeah, yeah. But you're, like we said, you're exhausted, you're tired. So, yeah. So it's Gosh. all about creating safe relationships. Right. That's actually the base of our model. And... And it's all about repairing when you have made a wrong step, you know? So I can't tell you how many times my daughter has told me, Mom, I think you are dysregulated. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you know, we make mistakes. So there's right. self-compassion so that you can have compassion for another. So the self-compassion is, I'm going to repair. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to show up and I am going to uh, heal and make sure that my child knows that they have a safe relationship with me. Yeah, being present is so important. And and right, I, I thought about on on a this morning. Right now, it's so easy for everyone to go hide in their devices. Mm -hmm. And just talking to your kids right now is more important than ever. I mean, f and it's hard. Yeah. First of all, my teenagers don't want to talk to me, but that's a whole other thing. But mm -hmm. <laughs> forcing yourself to go in the room, sit on the edge of their bed, and at least press dialogue forward. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, but it's not easy. Okay, so this is awesome. So we're going to do a couple fun things here at the end. Um, as we approach the end, I should say. Mm -hmm. First of all, thank you for the work you're doing at the, at the, at the Institute. It's phenomenal. What I ask this, and it's because there's, we all look at this and, you know, it means a lot. Where would you, what would you tell your 16 or 17 year old self? So I would tell her it's going to be okay to hang in there. I would tell her that she's a beautiful person inside and out. Um, and I would tell her it wasn't her fault. Right. Very powerful. So let's talk about the fast five. So that the show is based on faith, family, friends, fitness, and finances. Mm -hmm. what, I ask, what I ask guests to do is just whatever comes to mind. It can be a sentence. It can be a word. It can be five sentences. But I like this just because it's more of a stream of thought. So I'm just going to start. So when you think of faith. Bigger than myself. Family. <laughs> I just see Jolie and Marcel's faces, but nothing I wouldn't do for them. Friends. Essential. I don't want to do this life without community. Fitness. Essential. I do hot yoga, and um, it's become a very big part of my life. Okay, so I usually don't pause here, but I have mm -hmm. to because I started doing hot power fusion at a place called Core Power Yoga. Mm -hmm. So I'm doing it twice a week, and it's one of the greatest things I've ever done. I mean, there's a pool of sweat around me. It's fairly disturbing, but <laughs> that cleansing is incredible. It is incredible. Incredible. And I never... You know, with yoga, we say you just have to make it onto the mat. Yeah. I never make it onto the mat and then regret being there. And I never leave one of those sessions without feeling complete relief and totally grounded. Yeah, you never leave thinking, God, why did I do that? That was not, that was terrible. No. Like, it's always great. And for our parents that are listening, I, I worried about having time away from my kids when I do this, but I've learned it's so important for them to see me take care of myself. Yeah. And so I say mom needs to do this because it will allow me to be my best self for everyone in my life, including you. Okay. So finances. So I think of finances the way I think of most things in life, that it 
we have an opportunity to work to having this sense of abundance instead of focusing on scarcity. I also think about finances for momentous in that way. Um, and so we have to pay our debts and um, continue to move. Money is energy. And so we have to continue to move and make sure we have a healthy approach to money and finances so because if we don't our whole life won't be um balanced got it love that so a good friend of mine dr george burris who's spoken in my life many times um talks about that god still speaks to us through people Mm -hmm. and when you're you're you referencing community is so key. Mm-hmm. So what I'd like to say is I am glad to have you in my community and for you to be a part of my world. And you've spoken into me today as well as our listeners. So and you God as bless well. you, Jess Thank Trudeau. You. And I should say we will um, link to before we cap out, can you give us the best ways to find Momentus? So our website, uh-huh. um, momentusinstitute.org. And then um, all I can get you the handles for all of our social media sites. Okay, so listeners, I'll link those. But go follow us. Go follow Jess. Go follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook for the Mints Institute. Once again, God bless you, Jessica Trudeau. Many thanks. My mind moved past yesterday.